So what I want to do tonight is do a little review, briefly, of course, because we have to do it that in the sense to, to grasp chapter 4. Um, so we, if you want to glance with me back over to chapter 1 for this review part, in chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, we have an unveiling that, brought, that God had brought through Jesus to show his servants. Notice in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave, to, gave him, speaking of Jesus, to show his servants. So it, there's a purpose you know, for us to, to be able to see. And it's not just the observability, it's the knowability, if you would. In other words, to be able to let it rest within our hearts and give us a direction. He wanted us to know this. And it goes on to say, th- this is what he presents, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his servant John. So he's unveiling these things for you and I, his servants, and he's talking about things which shortly much must take place. Now, the context of that shortly means quickly or suddenly coming to pass. It's indicating more of a rapidity or rapidness of execution after the beginning takes place. So in other words, once it starts, it, it happens quick. The idea is, is the event may not occur soon. In other words, it was, it's been 2,000 years. So the wording wasn't implying it's going to happen in just a, within 10 minutes. It's, it's telling us that when it does take place, it will be sudden. And, and we understand that when we see, even if we consider the key events coming, like the rapture is, is extremely rapid, and then the, un, the ensuing events after the removal of the church, you know, beginning what we know to be the seven-year period, the tribulation period, you know, well, the rapture, and then the tribulation period, and then even you have the thousand-year millennial reign. That's, you know, you're a thousand and seven years, roughly. In the, in the view of eternity, that's pretty short, we can agree. That, that's, that's a very small uh, time frame, if you would. So anyway, this, these things are going to come to pass. He wants us to know. He said he, want, he wanted us to show, us, to show his servant these things that will shortly take place. And we pick up in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's a three-part blessing that we see here in chapter 1 of Revelation. This three-part blessing is to those who, as we see, read, and that means to distinguish between or to know accurately, to recognize. So those who read this, those who hear it, which means to give attention to it, to consider what's been said, and of course to those who keep it, which means to fulfill or to observe or pay attention to what's written. We see that in first, uh, the chapter one, verse three. And I want to—I just want to draw your, make a note. You know, maybe you realize this. What other book in the Bible has this declared blessing? No other, bio, no other book in the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean no other book blesses you, but it, it's just interesting that God said of this book, you will be, there's a special blessing. There's a special uh, encounter, experience, uh, engagement in your relationship with Christ when you, when you do what? When you're willing to distinguish, read this by faith, dig into it, take hold of it, and allow it to form you, shape you, direct you, you know, to observe it. And... How ironic that it is also the exclusive book with maybe a couple 
Well, actually, no, not even really Old Testament ones. This is one book that, that some gatherings under the name of a church will not read it because it's too controversial. It's too contrary to certain positions or opinions. You always got to be careful. If your opinion about something affects your, what we call observation, your reading of it, you've got to be very careful. Because I think your reading of it should form your opinion, not outside sources telling you what it's about. You see what, does that make sense? Because there's people that actually speak of the Bible. It's like, well, you can't trust the Bible. It's an old book. Well, how long ago did you read it? I ain't reading it. Well, you're an expert on it, but you don't read it. And you know all about it, but you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't understand it. Well, you don't, have to under, you don't have to read it to know it's not true. And I'm like, how, how amazing that that's so definitive and that's so positive and that's so persuasive for some people. And the self-declaration is, I don't read it. I don't have much interest in that. I never have. I mean, that to me is not spiritual discernment. It, seriously. That's just wisdom. Someone says, well, hey, did you, your car's not running right. Uh, did, you, did you read the manual on that? I got to read the manual. I just drive it. Well, but that particular flashing light probably might be listed in the manual. And that, those guys that write the manual don't drive the cars. You'd be going, you're, you're, you're a little low on fluid yourself, my friend. You know, it's like, it'd be, seem odd. So I have, a, I have a, an approach, because I'm, 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 my old nature mostly is a skeptic. You know, I didn't read the Bible because I didn't have time for it. But once I had an encounter with God in a way that caused me to think differently, I started reading the Bible, but I read it with the sense of like, how do I know this is true? And I realized early on that I had, there had to be a measure of faith imparted by the reader, where I would say, okay, I'm, I'm a, I really want to believe this, but I got to work through these things. And it was fascinating because I come across in Isaiah where God said, come now, let us reason together, you and I. So I, I started realizing, man, God invites us to reason with him, not to persuade him, but to receive from him, to, to realize what truth really is. And so I, it's kind of like, okay, I know you know what you're talking about, but I don't get it. So that was kind of my prayer. I know you know what you're talking about, but I don't get it. So I really, I guess it's called faith or whatever that is. I just need your help to understand. I really want to know what this means. And you know, I want to encourage you to have a, a, such a simple prayer life that the faith of a child could be manifested in your life in such a way that God would, would you know what I mean? Because you, know, you know what God says about the faith of a child. It, it, it's, it's just it's genuine faith. It, you know, how many kids get up in the morning, probably not going to get breakfast this morning, am I? I haven't really met that kid yet. They usually, in, you know, up to at least four or five, they show up at the table with an expectation that the authority figure, the parents are going to provide. And there's a lot of ways you could describe this faith, childlike faith. Because adult-like faith is different. But I don't, I'm not going to get into all this. I just want to tell you that there's a blessing in this when we approach it by faith. Faith is not something blind. Faith is not something you just believe whatever you're told. Faith is where you, you come together. You reason with God. God, I don't understand. Could you show me how this fits? Well, he shows us how this fits, quite honestly, in this particular book because it's really fascinating. He starts, it's a book about Jesus Christ, and we'll see some details about the Antichrist, but it's not about the Antichrist. It's about Jesus Christ. And we get that from chapter one, which is really oriented about teaching us who he is 
It speaks of this blessing. It, you know, as we go through, you see he says in verse 8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He says it again in verse 11, in case we forgot already. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He instructs John to write in this book to these different churches. He goes on to say in verse 17, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. He's, he's setting in place this, this awareness of who he is and who's bringing this book. And then we see what he does there so beautifully in, in verse 19. He says, write these things which you have seen and the things which, you, which are and the things which will take place after this. Jesus presents a guide for this book, an outline of the order of things to come. And it it's, can be seen as a key. It, it, it helps you and me see the chronology and kind of the order, so to speak. Write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things will take place after this. Well, what are the things that are seen? Just, just for you and I, as we would process this from the very first verse, the things which you have seen is verses 1 through 18. You know, Jesus spoke to John, and, and, and an angel spoke to John. And so here's what happened. These things he's seen. And then it says, and the things which are, so what are right in that moment as Jesus is speaking to me, but also those things that are, are at that time. And basically the things which are is verse 19 of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 3, verse 22, this, this is just the things of the church, the things pertaining to the church age. So we have what he's seen, we have the things which are, and then he ha- and we see the things which will take place after chapter 3, verse 22. That's what just took us to chapter 4, because we've been through chapter 2 and chapter 3, the things pertaining to the church and the details of God's instruction to the church. So the things that are going to take place after this, join me now in chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, after what things? Well, the things of chapters 2 and 3, concluding in verse 22. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you these things which must take place after this. After what's been taking place. Let's continue through the chapter, and we'll come back and and look at it a verse at a time. Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper, and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature like a face of, had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, 
who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So let's glance back now as we see from chapter four, beginning there in verse one, after these things pertaining to the church, on earth after these things I looked. So here, verse 22, what God has been speaking, Jesus has been speaking to him about the church. And then it's like he looks and behold a door opening, standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet. You know, it's interesting because oftentimes we see God uses the trumpet to herald or make known or to capture our attention and to bring forth. And it, I don't know if it speaks of just, I think it has to be a, a, a tone, you know, in other words, it's, gonna, it's not just a loud blast. It's got to be something that would draw our attention and, and, and something that would, would draw our interest, but also we would, could receive something. So it's like a trumpet, but it was a voice speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. So come up here. Well, I believe the church is there. I believe the church arrived in heaven somewhere between Revelation 3.22 and Revelation 4, verse 2. Just like we see him being called up. Come up here. Now, how did we get there? Because the things of the church we've, we've seen in chapters 2 and 3. So how did we get there? Well, it was the rapture. And, and I want to stop right here because this is important. And the reason is... If, if you don't understand that you're in heaven, then when you get to chapter 6 and you're reading about what's said to be the wrath of the Lamb, then, and if you don't know where you are when his wrath is poured out on the world, then for one, you're going to interpret passages like, say, in Matthew 24, oddly, because you're not realizing it's speaking to Jews, and you're not there when the abomination that brings desolation takes place because you're in heaven. You see, your interpretation would be different because you're thinking you're sitting here, and so you're trying to sort out what this Matthew 24 dynamic is. So let's take a little bit. I know many of us hold this position. It was called the pre-tribulation rapture position, which before the tribulation, the rapture would take place. And we'll just keep it simple tonight in a sense. It's just more of a review as well because it sets the stage as we read through these, especially these next two chapters. So when we go over to 1 Thessalonians, and we'll just look in chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Thessalonian church, Paul spent approximately three weeks there, a very short period. In that short period of time, he talked about eschatology, the end time stuff. He specifically spoke to this church about the rapture. It's the most clear presentation we see. There's also some great stuff in the letter to the Corinthians. But here is a young church. He's, he's comforting them because there was a concern about those who had already passed away. And they missed some of the things he's been talking about. And they were concerned that, oh, they died too soon before they seen this glory of God that Jesus spoke of. So this particular 
portion of Scripture is actually addressing that. We know that from verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. We have hope in Christ. We have hope not only in the resurrection, in a sense of, you know, we go when we pass away, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That, that's a, a beautiful uh, truth. It's presented, it's told, as we see it as a hope. But it goes on to say, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Picking up in verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and notice this, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be raptured, rapturios, it's, it's the word it's caught up is, is that translation of what we call rapture, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Verse 15, this we say, this is what's going to happen, be encouraged. This is going to take place. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. They'll precede us. In other words, they passed, but we'll be joined together. In verse 16, we see, be ready. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And in verse 17, fly united. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus will always be with the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? Because... We're told in Corinthians that it'll happen not in the blinking of an eye, but in the twinkling of an eye. The twinkling of it is so rapid. It's just, it's, you can't even imagine. How long does it take to twinkle? It's pretty quick, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just, and, and that's how fast it takes. It's actually beyond really our capacity to, to, to measure this or to, to take hold of this. Like, it's just so quick. Are, are you ready? I think we, we can be ready because that's really what Jesus said in several parables and several teachings. You know, it's, it's actually referred to as the doctrine of eminent return. That he can return at any moment, and eminently at any point. The, the early church, the, the very first generation, and every generation since, has not only embraced this, they've, totally, they've believed this to be true because it's taught clearly in Scripture that he can return at any moment. Now, we live in an age when we can see other things fulfilled in Scripture that some perceive, well, this has to happen first, and then this has to happen. No. Actually, nothing has to happen. We can see from where we live. There's nothing unfulfilled in regards to prophecy. Now, there's some things we do question. How is this going to work out by way of timing? How is this going to be if this takes place and then this? And how is that? Well, you know, we, we're living in a time that we're not even asking those questions as much. Because we see this vast horizon of prophecy. If you've seen the prophecies, I mean, you've read through the Bible, you know it's like one-fourth closer, sometimes even we'll say one-third prophetic in type, of a literary type. So it's a lot of prophecy on this horizon. And all of the prophecy speaks of, the, of Jesus, of his first coming and his return. It's all together. 
And so as he speaks of this, we see these things being fulfilled here and here. And we have, in essence, this convergence. We see prophecies fulfilled. We see things happen in Israel. Right now, if you're watching the news, you see things are, are you, they're eminent. You, if you've watched and seen what Russia is doing, and if you're in a, remotely curious about this weird country called Ukraine, and if you're paying attention to this sorry collection of government called Syria, and you see what's happening, and you see their position, and you're familiar with terms like Gog and Magog and, you know, all these different terms that are from the Bible. Speaking of this force that's going to gather to the north and try to take out Israel. Now, aren't you glad there's nobody in the Middle East that's an enemy of Israel, right? Aren't you glad they're just all getting along? They will never get along. They will never get along. That's prophetic. God said that. And he said that they will come in And there won't be no ally of Israel that's a superpower with the symbol of an eagle in prophecy. It'll happen in such a way that this overbearing monumental force coming in to attack Israel will be so powerful that Israel, when they're victorious, and they will be because God saves Israel, that the enemies of Israel will declare their God saved them. Not some other country, not some other ally or anything. And if you're watching, you've got to be curious because there's one driving, at least some clarifying fact that is a part of world history that was first embedded in Scripture. And that fact is Israel as a nation came back into existence in a day. See, they were dispersed. They were, they were out of their native land for almost 2,000 years. And miraculously, unexplainably, never has a nation, a people, been dispersed and then just regathered in their homeland. They, did, they communicated without communicating. They didn't have the internet. They didn't send out a mass email. They didn't get a group text. See, in 1948, they actually started assembling back in the early 1900s. And it was, it's kind of, it was such an oddity. Because it's not like they had some way to communicate. It just, strangely, in regards to human com- communication interaction, through all the parts of the world, they just started moving like some migration back to Israel. And then we know what happened in 1948 when they were recognized as a nation, which that was the start. When they, were, when they signed as a nation and were recognized as a nation, it was the first declaration of war against them. And it's been going on ever since. And yet they're preserved. More than preserved, they're prosperous. They're the reference point for the most of the world, not just because of the wars, but some of the, the technology and, and the various things that they produce. You are, you're a nation. We're a generation that's seen that happen. And, and that's got to cause you to go, light bulb. Something's happening in this world around us. And at least start pondering and considering and wondering. Because at any moment, we can be removed. The bride of Christ would be taken up. We can see, you know, it says in verse uh, 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 concerning the rapture, comfort one another with these words. It's comforting to know that we will not be going through the tribulation, and that should be a hearty amen. 
When you know what it says, you, you should know. Now, someone could say, well, how, I don't know. How do you know we're not going through it? Well, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, speaking of us, his church, his children, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And some have argued that hold a different position about the timing of the rapture. So it's like, well, you know, mankind has went through tough times before. Totally agree with them. That point I won't argue. But I will argue that the wrath to come is not punitive. In a sense, it's not punishment because of disobedience, like the nation of Israel and some other things. It, 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 this is different. It's called, according to Revelation chapter 6, the wrath of the Lamb. That's different. That's different, okay? You know, he deals with his children different, but when he pours out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world, he's not going to include his children. He's not going to include his bride, if you would. Let me read to you what it says in Revelation 6, verse 16. This is early in the tribulation, you know, during when the seal judgments and this to be followed by the, the trumpet and then the bowl judgments. This is what it says in verse 16 and 17. Fall on us and hide from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand it? See, so we cannot say this is just another tough season coming, this tribulation thing. It's a unique thing. It's a specific, it's an event. That's why you see it in capital letters when it's speaking of the tribulation, in small case letters when it's speaking of various tribulations, which are different than in this event. And this event we know to be his, his wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. In Revelation chapter 19 we're told that we are his bride. That's terminology that God chose. It's not like we say, can, can I be this? So that's strange that he would put his bride through wrath when she has been redeemed or forgiven by him. Does that make sense? It's just, I, just approach, I like to approach these things just from a very logical sense and, and not let what we deserve. Some have told me we deserve to go through the tribulation. Well, I can agree with that. You don't even deserve salvation. Well, what, you know, I mean, that's not an issue of what we deserve. That's got nothing to do. That's a complete misunderstanding of the very nature of God's forgiveness and the grace and kindness of his love and who he is. So we got to realize, you know, this, this tribulation period, which we're going to get into, and that's why I want to spend a little time here, is significant. It's, it's, a, it's something we, we don't want to go through. It, it, I'll, maybe I'll come back to this here at the end, but let's go back to chapter four of revelation in chapter four we've seen there in verse one this come up here and i love it because i think of it this way john is brought to heaven to write a trailer for the upcoming end times event can we agree what is a trailer? You know, when you have a little, little we see them in video form, but it's communicating the content of, say, of a movie or a book. Here's this, this is what's going to happen. And that's all we're getting. We're getting a glimpse, and it's, it's, it's kind of horrific in some parts of it. But we're just getting a glimpse of what's going to take place, of these things coming. Pastor Skip Heitzig in his book says it this way. In chapters 4 and 5, we're peeking into the portals of heaven. We're, we're, we're able to look in and do a little window shopping, so to speak, and see what it is to come. What an amazing thing. Notice what happens. He said, I'll show you the things which must take place after this. After the rapture. 
And then things are going to take place. And I, I think we're going to be there with them. I think, and don't make a big deal about this, but I actually think that, that God took John from the island of Patmos because God can do things we don't even grasp. I, I just think he was there. I don't limit it to be just a vision. I think he somehow just took him, he kind of hit pause on this thing called time and took John forward, and I think he was physically present there. I don't make a, I'm not gonna write a book about it, but you know what I'm saying? I, why not? Why couldn't it have been that way? Some have talked about, he's asked this kind of this, in this head vision. Some of the things I'm seeing here, man, this seems like this guy is standing right at the place. And I'm thinking, man, well, how cool it would have been to just be able to just, you know. I mean, hey, we can write movies about time travel. Why can't God just do it, you know? So anyway, don't enjoy the consideration that, man, he's there. And he's like, and so he said, come up here, which ties together. I think you can, many have studied it deeply. I didn't, because I'm not tilted that way. But they tie that come up here as the time of the rapture, tying that together. It's a very interesting principle, of course. Verse 2, immediately... I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. It doesn't say it, but I think he went, <clears throat> it had to be an awe moment. Can we agree? Nothing in this world that he's ever seen, nothing could compare to what he's seeing in this very moment. Now, you know, you know John was a faithful witness of Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos because he didn't die when they boiled him in oil. And so they exiled him to this island later to release him and he returned back to Ephesus and continued to minister and serve in that church. But he was a pretty fascinating, faithful follower. And Jesus says, hey, I want to get you a glimpse. And you got to see this beautiful glimpse of the triunity of God here in verse two. I was in the spirit and there was a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. The Father is on the throne, and I'm going to go through this loosely, meaning we want to process what we're seeing here in, in, in the, the full picture, so to speak. We don't want to get too hung up on the anthropomorphic. And when I say that, I literally, literally had to look it up because I read it. I'm like, what that mean? That's a cool-sounding word. And it's literally applying human characteristics to a being. So do you realize we do that? God actually does that through his word. So he speaks to us in, thing, in terms that we understand because he speaks of you know, his, his heart, the heart of God, or different things that are applying characteristics and qualities of humans so we can relate. And so we see here, he's set, he, the one who sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone, it goes on to say. Consider that it's the father on the throne, and then in chapter 5, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scrolls and to loose its seven seals. And so, he, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. So some believe that it's the Father we see here in verse 2. And then Jesus over in 5.5. 5. Others believe it's the other way around. Either way, the emphasis is upon the glory of God. Agreed? As we sort that out and figure it out, the emphasis is upon the glory of God. Now let's look at some things he gives us to, to kind of paint a picture in our own minds as best we can. 
We see there in verse 3, he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Jasper, we're told in Revelation 21 verse 11, is clear as crystal. So here's this, this crystal clear stone, or it's like this crystal clear stone. And a sardius stone was uh, kind of like a ruby, like a brilliant red, maybe even kind of a hint of more of a, a rich or kind of a burgundy flavor, if you would, so to speak. So here we're trying to get an awareness. It's really colorful, quite honestly, because, you know, God did not create in black and white. He didn't use grayscale. I think he should have, because this world is, is grayscale in the sense of sin. But in his, his majesty and his phenomenal creativity and his love for humanity, he created this world with phenomenal colors and everything. It's amazing to me if you think about it. To a fallen world, this is not even a fixer-upper. We know it's a burner-upper, so it's not going to stay. And he chose that. You know, what if we considered, gosh, why would you put so much into this which is not going to stay? Well, because I can. And wait till you see what I've created for eternity. That sparks like a great curiosity. We go on to see that he says that there was there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So the, the rainbow, we know how magnificent that is. We know that when it speaks of emerald, he could be speaking of green, which we know emerald to be, or speaking of the great beauty of an emerald. The wording kind of leaves that a little open. I couldn't help but notice, it's interesting in our day, that the, the, the sexually obsessed in our society who seek to live contrary to God's instruction use the emerald and the rainbow as their, as their symbols. Some of you are, well, some of you know this, that you're old enough. You don't probably study it, but the Emerald City, produced in 1976, was the first gay, gay TV program. It's actually produced in New York. The rainbow is the symbol chosen by the LGBTQ community. It's interesting, I think, because we have these symbols in heaven, and I believe the enemy of our soul, is aware of that. And I believe he takes these symbols that speak of God's majesty and his beauty and his creativity and his love, and then he uses them in this world to distort somehow what is currently in place in heaven. And I think we have parallels with what we know about even our own lives, how he takes things that can be beautiful and he distorts them and uses them to be a, you know, basically try to make God look bad. I'll just leave it there. Verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. 24 elders, who are they? I'm not sure. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to be up here teaching definitively and confidently and for certainty, but here's the thing to always remember. We are not told who they are, so we merely ponder or speculate, but we do not be definitive where the Bible is not specific. I think it is healthy to consider, okay, these 24 men, I think they're representing the church. I, I, I'm not convinced, I mean, they could, elder, the wording could even be some type of angelic being, when you see their role, it doesn't seem to fit. So I believe it's representing the church. It's perhaps 12 Old Testament and 12 New Testament elders, very possible. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot of discussion. Actually, there's been a lot of debates and fights and division over who they actually are. But if you limit yourself to the text for your interpretation, you're going to have to have a broader view. You're going to have to realize what, what's the focus. Well, the focus is what they do in unison, as seen in verse 10. They bow down and worship. And that's the emphasis. That's the whole point as we see this. It says that they are sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And I went to what we call the internet and I did a search and I did typed in images and tried to see what some artists and some people with some creativity and maybe even some you know biblical respect and maybe even a relation. And it's really fascinating. Not one of them would I say, oh, that's the one I want to project, because there's nothing I don't know. But look at what's painted here. They're around the throne, and on the thrones there are 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they have crowns of gold on their head. It's majestic. There's nothing in this world we can compare it to. There's no pomp and pageantry that would even come close because there's nothing in the environment, the scene and the setting that would not, nothing we know could match the fashion and that whole setup. You see what I'm saying? It's amazing to me. I think it's meant to be that way. And in verse five, and from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. It's like, that speaks of power and unity. Here's this whole thing going on. And I, you know, I'm sure John's like, is this because I'm here? Or does this go on all the time? Is this just a unique thing? Is it a celebration of something that's annual? Or is it like a holiday? What is this? I'm sure he's like getting it right in the moment. Goes on to say there in verse five, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits we know, we've looked at this before, speaks of completeness. It speaks of perfection. In Isaiah chapter 11, let me run over to that. You can join me there if you'd like. We're just going to read one verse and come back. But in Isaiah chapter 11, well, I'll read two verses. We've seen this previously a few weeks ago. Isaiah 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Related to David? David's father. Okay, so we know the kingly line that Jesus is from is from David, God's design. And a branch shall grow out of its roots. Look in verse 2 of Isaiah 11. And you can count with me. The Spirit of the Lord, the Lord I believe is, is one that we see, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom would be number 2. And understanding, number 3. The Spirit of counsel, number 4. And might, number 5. The Spirit of knowledge, 6. And the fear of the Lord, 7. And I reference that only because I think it speaks of, it gives us a glimpse of the spirit. It's not meant to say that these are the seven distinct spirits, like they're a separate mini spirit in alignment with the Holy Spirit. It's conveying to you and I that there's these characteristics, these expressions, not exclusive or you know just seven. Seven speaks of completeness, and it gives us, a, I believe, a healthy glimpse at least to consider that. I'm not. I don't think we should be definitive that Isaiah 11 is what exactly he's speaking about, but that helps us process what it talks about when it says the seven spirits of God. Before Now in verse 6, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Pretty amazing creatures. Why would they have eyes in front and back? Because they have children. They're a mom. Well, no, not that, not exactly, but it, it's because they, it conveys, they're all seen. They, they, they just, you know, they have a purpose, and they're moving around this throne. This sea of glass 
It's like crystal. We know that. Now, a sea of glass is like, what is that about? In the times of the writing of of the Bible, in the New Testament times and even the Old Testament times, and I believe this is true in our times now with many governments, many rulers, especially, um, you know, monarchies and such. But when often a ruler or a king is separated by smooth pavement or bricks or precious metal, right? You enter, you don't go bold, you don't go to, to the king. You know, there's a flat space in this. I don't know what the theory is totally, but it kind of creates this separation. The citizens or the subjects cannot approach the king unless he lowers his scepter and invites them in across this surface of separation. Um, Queen Esther is an example, correct? She couldn't come before the king unless he, and he, she had to come in, but then she was at risk of losing her life unless he lowered that scepter and allowed her to approach. Well, here's what's interesting. Here's this sea of glass before the throne. How magnificent is this thing? I, can, I am stuck, and I'm a pretty imaginative guy, you know what I mean? I have a, you know, yeah. But it's hard to grasp how beautiful, how phenomenal, how amazing this is. And then you have these creatures there, and they have the throne in the middle, and you have all this, this amazing things that nothing on this earth compared to, although he's saying it's kind of like this. Because there's nothing that you and I know that would really, we could, we could say, oh, it's like a smooth sea in that time on the lake when the sun was first coming up. And so then I can elevate that a few clicks and it'll be kind of like what, no, it, it just kind of gives you a sense because you, you're not going to know until you get there how phenomenal it is. So we see now in verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf. Third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four cre- living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day or night. Now, let me go back to verse 7. You can research this on your own. Um, I don't entirely embrace it, but I kind of get where they're coming from. But they take, many scholars take the four Gospels, and they associate the symbolism of the face to the author and the style and type of writing the author presented who Jesus was through the context of the gospel. And you can dig into it. I, I struggled because when, when you start making analogies, you got to make your own rules. You know what I'm saying? You, gotta, you kinda, kind of make up how they fit. And my, my brain always cancels it out once I keep going. <laughs> it's like, well, that doesn't mean this. Way. Anyway, so I want you to look into it yourself. And, and totally, you know, it certainly gives us a glimpse As we've seen there in verse 8, the the four living creatures, each having six wings, full of eyes, round and within, they did not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What a glorious song. You know, we've sang a song similar to that. Um, To me, it says so much because it's it's a point of comfort, and it's oftentimes you know, we're a verse that I, I close my prayers with, and mostly my private prayers, but you are the one who was and is and is to come. And I know my association because of my relationship with Jesus is, is really related more to me. You were the one who was before I was born again. You're the one that brought me into the kingdom. You're, you're the one that you, you, you are right now. 
and you will be. And I, I knew you a little bit when I first met you. I, I hardly knew you. But I know you more now, and I will know you more in the future. What an amazing thing to be able to say, I, I want to get to know you more. The one who was and is and is to come. What a great thing it's going to be to hear that declared. Whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and will and were created. Isn't that a magnificent expression of adoration and worship? What we have here, without getting into speculative detail, is simply put, we have living creatures declaring that God is worthy of glory and honor and power and thanks. Living creatures declaring that God is worthy of glory and honor and power and thanks. There's creatures right in this moment in heaven declaring this. And I hope that we, as born-again Christians, can do likewise even today. In the midst of your trials, in the pit of life sometimes, let not yourself be so temporal that you forget your eternal. Let, don't let these things weigh you down so much that they rob you of, of the challenges. You can think back into the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul and others were in jail. I believe it was Philippi. And they were chained and everything looked bad and they were in a horrible spot in a, in a, a pit of a dungeon. And, and they praised God. They worshiped him and they seen his deliverance. They seen his hand. And if they wouldn't have seen his hand, they would have still praised him. What a glorious thing to have that relationship with God that we can, we can just sing to him. And so Greg's gonna come up and lead us in a song of worship and close in our time. And I mentioned to you when we first started our study, to the early church, the book of Revelation, it was their worship handbook. To the Old Testament, it was the Psalms. That was their worship handbook. That, that, that was their, their songbook. But to the early church, it was, it was the book of Revelation. And we're seeing now, because we're seeing these glimpses, and we're seeing what's declared. And, and what an amazing thing. I encourage you, as we go through... You may make a little note in your own notes because you're going to come across various passages, various verses like, we've seen that. We've seen that. That's where that came from. So with that, will you stand with me? I'll pray. And then uh, you know, Greg will just lead us in song and then we'll, you know, he'll just close us out, okay? God, thank you so much for your word tonight. Thank you for what you show us. It's such simplicity and phenomenal beauty things of this world we, we, we understand we see your presence we, we understand your comfort we know you're with us and you give us a glimpse of eternity to come you, you allow us to peer through a window so to speak and to see the heavenly realm Unin, uninhibited un, un, unrestricted not bothered by sin and darkness and guilt and shame. But Lord, you've, you've made it that we can be with you in such a place where there's no more 
tears and no more sorrow, no more pain and no more suffering, no more temptation, no more darkness. Oh, we've got a glimpse of that tonight, Lord, from your word. And Lord, may it ignite us and move us, stir us to turn our eyes upon you as we sang earlier, to look to you, Jesus, in all things. We sing this song, Lord, in unison, in agreement, in recognition of what you've declared in your word. Thank you, God. Amen.